Hello world, this is Roger Corville and this is For the Hope, where we keep it real as we read through the Bible conversationally, talk about the truth claims of Christianity, and learn how to fall more in love with Jesus and communicate that love to the people in his world. You ready? Let's roll. Welcome. I want you to know these words. Which theory about the resurrection best accounts for the data? You might not have all of the answers or remember all of the arguments. Uh, you might not even remember what swoon versus hallucination versus myth was. But I want you to remember those words. Which theory about the resurrection best accounts for the data? That itself should put a little rock in someone's shoe, as as Greg Coco likes to say, so that every time they take a step, there's like, mm, oh, mm. That's the point anyway, right? Hey, welcome back. James chapter 3 is where we're at today in the Bible. NET translation this week. And moving toward a rather momentous change with regard to how you find this podcast. So, if somehow you run out of podcast and you still want to catch what's going on, you're going to want to go do some poking around for For the Hope. Forthehope.com and we'll get uh, that somehow that will get you to where the podcast will, will become, will end up. You ready? James chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, because you know that we will be judged more strictly. For we all stumble in many ways. If someone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect individual, able to control the entire body as well. And if we put bits into the mouths of horses to get them to obey us, then we guide their entire bodies. Look at ships, too. Though they are so large and driven by harsh winds, they are steered by a tiny rudder wherever the pilot's inclination directs. So too the tongue. Mm, get this here. He's, this, is, this is the punchline. So too the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it has great pretensions. Think how small a flame sets a huge forest ablaze, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue represents the world of wrongdoing among the parts of our bodies. It pollutes the entire body and sets fire to the course of human existence and is set on fire by hell. Uh, no, James, what do you really think? <laughs> I don't know if that's uplifting or scary as heck. Verse 7. For every kind of animal, bird, reptile, and sea creature is subdued and has been subdued by humankind. But no human being can, sub can subdue the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless the Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people made in God's image. busted with it we bless the lord and father and with it we curse people made in god's image from the same mouth 
come blessing and cursing. These things should not be so, my brothers and sisters. A spring does not pour out fresh water and bitter water from the same opening, does it? Can a fig tree produce olives, my brothers and sisters, or, or a vine produce figs? Neither can a saltwater spring produce fresh water. Who, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, he should show his works done in the gentleness that wisdom brings. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfishness in your hearts, do not boast and tell lies against the truth. Such wisdom does not come from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where there is jealousy and selfishness, there is disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, accommodating, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and not hypocritical. And the fruit that consists of righteousness is planted in peace among those who make peace. Well, got that? If James just didn't get in your business, uh, you probably weren't even paying attention. <laughs> My friends, think about the unique nature of the Christian religion. I mean, there are so many aspects of Christianity that are just simply unique. Um, from the fact that all of the heroes of the faith, faith were just kind of schmucks to, to the fact that growth in maturity produces humility. Because, and I think this is kind of a bad paraphrase of C.S. Lewis, the closer I draw to the light, the more... I see the darkness in my own heart. James here insists that Christians show their obedience to God by controlling their tongues and, and, and desires. And he, he talks about how the tongue is great power, both for good and for evil. And the stubbornness and inconsistency is just at least something we should <laughs> we should try to grow past or fight with the Lord's help, right? And perhaps in so doing, demonstrate heavenly wisdom rather than earthly wisdom that produces envy and selfish ambition as opposed to peace. You want peace in the world? At least, uh, at least according to one of James's arguments, that comes from the tongue being pure and peaceable and gentle and accommodating and full of mercy and good fruit and impartial and not hypocritical. Uh, the opposite of which could be you know, boasting, slander, 
Mm, here's a biggie that Paul usually hits on. Gossip. So easy. Let's turn our conversation. Let's turn our conversation to Easter. The greatest of all the Christian holidays, or at least it should be. Might not be as much fun as Christmas. But we pass from death to life based on what happened at Easter. <laughs> not, not based on what happened at Christmas, per se. Hey, as Peter Kreft has been arguing, there are five possible theories for answering the question, which theory about what really happened in Jerusalem on that first Easter Sunday can account for the data? And so far, we've talked about the swoon theory, the hallucination theory, the conspiracy theory, and finally, today, we'll talk about the idea of myth. It, could it all just be a myth? Peter lays out six arguments, which is fewer than others, but the, these are a little deeper and more involved. So we'll see how this how this rolls. I'll try to make this um, as understandable and clear as possible. Refutation of the myth theory, number one. The style of the Gospels is radically and clearly different from the style of all the myths. Any literary scholar who knows and appreciates myths can verify this. There are no overblown, spectacular, childishly exaggerated events. Nothing is arbitrary. Everything fits in. Everything is meaningful. And the hand of a master is at work. Psychological depth is at a maximum. Ooh. I don't know that I've ever even... I've read a lot of Peter Kreft. I don't remember him saying that. Catch that. Psychological depth is at a maximum. In myth, it is at a minimum. In myth, such spectacular external events happen that it... Happen... Uh, such spectacular external events happen that it would be distracting to add much internal depth of the character. That is why it is ordinary people like Alice who are the protagonists of extraordinary adventures in Wonderland. That character depth and development of everyone in the Gospels, especially, of course, Jesus himself, is remarkable. It is also done with an incredible economy of words. Myths are verbose. The Gospels are laconic meaning concise. There are also telltale marks of eyewitness description, like the little detail of Jesus writing in the sand when asked whether to stone the adulteress or not in John chapter 8. No one knows why this is put in. Nothing comes of it. The only explanation is that the writer saw it. If this detail and others like it throughout all four Gospels were invented, then a first century tax collector... Matthew, a young man, Mark, a doctor, Luke, and a fisherman, John, all independently in invented the new genre of realistic fantasy 19 centuries before it was reinvented in the 20th. 
The stylistic point is argued so well by C.S. Lewis in Modern Theology and Biblical Criticism, uh, which is in a couple of his works, including Christian Reflections. It's argued so well by C.S. Lewis that we strongly refer the reader to it as the best comprehensive anti-demythologizing essay we have seen. And let us be even more specific. Let us compare the Gospels with two particular mythic writings from around that time to see, for ourselves, the stylistic differences. The first is the so-called Gospel of Peter, a forgery. Hear that correctly. The Gospel of Peter. It's called, a, this is not the book of Peter in the New, your New Testament. This is a, uh, an extra-biblical writing called the Gospel of Peter. It is a forgery from around A.D. 125, which uh, John Dominic Crossan of the Jesus Seminar, don't get me started on them, a current media darling among, doubtings, among doubters insists is earlier than the four Gospels. This is... And so as William Lane Craig, one of the good guys, puts it, and this is kind of a paragraph-long quote from, um, from his book called Apologetics, in this account... The tomb is not only surrounded by Roman guards, but also by all the Jewish Pharisees and elders, as well as a great multitude from all the surrounding countryside who have come to watch the resurrection. Suddenly, in the night, there rings out a loud voice in heaven, and two men descend from heaven to the tomb. The stone over the door rolls back by itself, and they go into the tomb. The three men come out of the tomb, two of them holding up the third man. The heads of the two men reach up into the clouds, but the head of the third man reaches beyond the clouds. Then, the, then a cross comes out of the tomb, and a voice from heaven asks, Have you preached to them that sleep? And the cross answers, Yes. End of quote of William Lane Craig describing the Gospel of Peter. Here is a second comparison from Richard Pertle. Uh, in a book called Thinking About Religion. I don't know otherwise who Richard is. Here we go. This is multi-paragraph. It may be worthwhile to take a quick look, for purposes of comparison, at the closest thing we have around the time of the Gospels to an attempt at realistic fantasy. This is the story of Apollonius of Tyana, written about A.D. 250 by Flavius Philostratus. There is some evidence that in Neo. Pythagorean sage named Apollonius may really have lived, and thus Philostratus's work is a real example of what of what have thought the Gospels to be, a fictionalized account of the life of a real sage and teacher introducing miraculous elements to build up the prestige of the central figure. It thus gives us a good look at the what a real example of a fictionalized biography would look like, written at a time and a place not too far removed from those in which the Gospels were written. The first thing we notice is the fairy tale atmosphere. There is a rather nice little vampire story, which inspired a minor poem by Keats called Lamia. There are animal stories about, for instance, snakes in India big enough to drag off and eat an elephant. And the sage wanders from country to country, and wherever he goes, he is likely to be entertained by the king or emperor who holds long conversations with him and sends him on his way with camels and precious stones. Here is a typical passage about healing miracles. Quote, A woman who had seven miscarriages was cured through the prayers of her husband as follows. 
The wise man told the husband, when his wife was in labor, to bring a live rabbit under his cloak and to, to the place where she was, walk around her and immediately release the rabbit, for she would lose her womb as well as her baby if the rabbit was not immediately driven away. Unquote. From this passage being quoted by Richard Pirtle. And he continues. The point is that this is what you get when the imagination goes to work. Once the boundaries of fact are crossed, we wander into fairyland. And very nice, too, for amusement or recreation. But the Gospels are set firmly in the real Palestine of the first century. And the little details are not picturesque inventions, but the real details of an, that only an eyewitness or a skilled realistic novelist can give. End of Richard Pirtle's little section. See, I think we mentioned a couple days ago that that um, Peter Kreft said that responding to the myth theories was a little more involved, hence the slightly longer explanations. We may not get to, uh, we won't get them all today. Argument number two. So I think if I can summarize, if argument number one, argument number one is that stylistically, the Gospels are radically and clearly different from the style of myths. Okay. Argument number two. A second problem is that there was not enough time for myth to develop. Let me pause and just put a big exclamation point behind that. That is some that is an argument that I've heard from a lot of different apologists, and this is one that I want you to remember. Why couldn't it be a myth? Because it, there wasn't enough time for myth to develop. The original demythologizers pinned their case onto a late second century date for the writing of the Gospels. Several generations have to pass before the added mythological elements can be mistakenly believed to be facts. Here, let me say here why that's important. Uh, oh, he's going to say it. Eyewitnesses would be around before that to discredit the new mythic versions, right? So if people started spinning tall tales while there were still people around that remembered, or maybe my dad remembered, or my granddad remembered, then your made-up version doesn't make any sense because I heard it from my grandpa, and I trust my grandpa. We know of other cases where myths and legends of miracles developed around a religious founder, for example, Buddha, Lao Tzu, and Muhammad. In each case, many generations passed before the myth surfaced. The dates for the writing of the Gospels have been pushed back by every empirical manuscript dis uh, discovery. Only abstract hypothesizing pushes the date forward. Almost no knowledgeable scholar today holds what Bultmann said it was necessary to hold in order to believe the myth theory. Bultmann was a, I think, 17th or 18th century um, uh, liberal theologian who really, really started to attack the, the credibility of the Bible and basically was a, a, a big chunk of the modern liberal movement calling it myth as opposed to fact. 
Anyway, here's Peter Kreft going, uh, almost no knowledgeable scholar today holds what Boltmann did, which is that there is no first century textual evidence that Christianity began with a divine in, in resurrected Christ, not a human and dead one, which was Boltmann's assertion. Some scholars still dispute the first century date for the Gospels, especially John's. But no one disputes that Paul's letter were written within the lifetime of eyewitnesses to Christ. So let us argue from Paul's letters. Either these letters contain myth, or they do not. If so, there is lacking the several generations necessary to build up a commonly believed myth. There is not even, not even one generation, let alone generations. If these letters are not myth then the Gospels are not either. For Paul affirms all the main claims of the, of the Gospels. Julius Mueller put the anti-myth argument this way. This is about a paragraph argument from his book, The Theory of Myths in Its Application to the Gospel History, Examined and Confuted. One cannot imagine how such a series of legends could arise in a historical age, obtain universal respect, and supplant the historical recollection of the true character, meaning Jesus. If eyewitnesses were still at hand, who could be, dispo who could be questioned respecting the truth of the recorded marvels? Hence, legendary fiction, as it likes not the clear, as it likes not the clear present time, but prefers the mysterious gloom of gray antiquity, is wont to seek a remoteness of age along with that of space and to remove its boldest and most rare and most wonderful creations into very remote and unknown land. And if that sounded a little wonky, it's because it was written pushing 200 years ago. Muller challenged his 19th century contemporaries to produce a single example anywhere Get this. He challenged his contemporaries to produce a single example anywhere in history of a great myth or legend arising around a historical figure and being generally believed within 30 years of, after that figure's death. No one has ever answered him. My friends, that's why dating of the Gospels and or the books of the New Testament starts to become kind of a big deal. And as you probably caught there, you know, it, 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 read any group of scholars and they'll give you a range. Oh, yeah, the book of, you know, 1 Corinthians was written between the 40, you know, late 40s to the early 60s or something like that, right? But the argument here is that everyone who has ever argued for myth try to push those dates back because they know they got a problem anyway argument number two summarized there was not enough time for myth to develop so there you go james gets in our business and we start to learn some arguments against the assertion that the resurrection is a myth amen i love you amen